listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 10, like you said, but if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're already there, keep your finger there in Daniel 10, and I want us to look at Revelation chapter 12, and I want us to see that this battle that Daniel is going to be looking at, and he has this vision of, it's actually talked about here in Daniel chapter 12, and this is the battle that we have going on for all of human history since the fall of mankind, and since even before that, we have this battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, between light and dark. And if we see here in Romans, sorry, in Revelation chapter 12 and verses seven through nine, it says this, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Now, I'm not going to equate in the same way that Cyrus did uh, this to myself, um, because I'm more spiritual than Cyrus is, hopefully, uh, but we'll talk more about this angel in just a few minutes. But we see here Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that is the evil one, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. We know how the story ends. We know where human history is going. And so when we look at the, the book of Daniel, as we, we looked at the first six chapters and we see the narrative of Daniel, and now we look at the second half of Daniel, we know that this battle has been waging for centuries before us this morning. But we know this, we know this, friends. We know how it ends, and we know that God always defeats Satan. Amen? God always defeats Satan. So that's the backdrop for the book of Daniel, especially when we look today at chapter 10. Let's begin in verse number one. We're going to jump right in. We've got a lot to cover. I'm going to look for the first half of, uh, of the sermon at the particulars of this passage, and then we're going to look at the second half of the heart of Daniel and how that intersects with maybe how we came in this morning. So we begin here in Daniel chapter 10, and verse number one. I'm not going to go through every single verse, but I want to hit the high points of this. I may go through every single verse. I say that every week, and eventually I get through, and I'm like, I did look at every single verse. So I'm not going to read this through again since Chris just read it for us. But Daniel chapter 10, and verse number one, it says this. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who is named Belteshazzar. Now notice, we have here, he has two different names. The word Daniel, which, by the way, is also my middle name, it means God is my judge. God is my judge. The name that the uh, Babylonians gave to Daniel was Belteshazzar, which means this demon god, Bel is the one that I answer to. So every single morning when Daniel woke up, he had a decision to make. Am I going to serve the God of the Bible, Yahweh, or am I going to serve the God of this word, Bel? So we have both names written here. Daniel wrote both names for himself. So he would know, so we would know who is writing this. Daniel is saying, this is my vision. It says, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word 
and had understanding of the vision. Notice the word conflict there. This in the Hebrew is the word sebe. Everybody say sebe. Okay, so that's the Hebrew word there for conflict. This word conflict, he's actually alluding to the vision that we're going to see in the next chapter. Okay, so if you look at the way Daniel 7 through 12 is broken down, we have, again, the first six chapters are narrative. We know the stories there. Chapter 7 through 12 is broken down like this. In chapter 7, we had the vision of beasts and the son of man. In chapter 8, we had visions of the ram and the goat. In chapter 9, we had prayer and vision of 70 weeks, and we looked at that last week. And if you have not listened so far in this series on Daniel, we did chapters 1 through 6 back in the fall. We're doing chapter 7 through 12 right now in the spring. I would encourage you, go listen to those, watch those, so you can understand the flow of this book. And now we get to chapters 10 through 12. This is all together. And this is the vision of the book of truth. And we'll see today in the very last verse, I think it's verse 21, the book of truth. And so chapter 10 sets up the vision. So in chapter 10, we actually don't see the vision yet. The vision is in chapter 11. So today we have the the setup for this vision and what's happening with Daniel as he's setting this up. And so that word sebe there, the conflict is referring to the vision. And sebe literally means warfare. It means there's a battle happening. This is a really big deal. It literally means army or hard service or great suffering. So that's what the vision is going to be about. Now, let's keep going. Verse number two. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river uh, Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked to behold a man clothed. And we'll look at that in just a second. But here's what I want us to see first. So do we understand the context of what's going on here? So it says there, it says, in those days... At the very beginning of verse number two, we have to understand what those days are. And he clarifies this for us in verse number four. He gives us the day, the month. Here's what's happening. This was the time of Passover for the Jews, for the Hebrews. And during that time, it was a time of of mourning that they are in exile, that they were in captivity. Now, we know that at this point, a lot of the Jews have actually gone back to Jerusalem. We looked at that last week. But Daniel there has remained in Babylon. We don't really know why. It was a 700-mile journey, so maybe he was too old, too feeble, too weak to make this journey. He's probably mid-80s to early 90s at this point. It's a really long journey. He's still in there in Babylon. But here's what we know is that Passover would last for a week. So normally it would be a week's time. And he says here he's been doing this for how many weeks? Not one, but three weeks. So he has stayed in this place of mourning. And during this time of unleavened bread, that's the only, t- the only thing that they would eat is actually unleavened bread. This time of Passover was a time to do two things. And we just sing about this. It's fantastic. He, it's a time for us to look back and say, here's what God has done so far. He has redeemed us from the hand of the Egyptians. That's where the Passover was inaugurated, where it started. And we're looking forward to this time where we're going to experience ultimate freedom. And so that's where Daniel is when we look at this context of verses two through four. It says that he was mourning. Again, we don't exactly know why he was mourning. Uh, it, it may just been the fact that he, was, he had to stay back in Babylon. We don't know for sure. It may have been because the people of Israel had gone back into the city of Jerusalem. They had been there for between one and three years, and they still had not 
begun work on the temple yet. We don't know why he's mourning, but we know that he is. We'll look at verses five through seven. So he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a, a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl. His face was the appearance of lightning. His eyes flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words are like the sound of a multitude. Now, for, for most folks, as we read this, we're like, oh, yeah, this is crazy. That is wild. Okay, what's next? But that's because we grew up with television, okay? So understand, when Daniel sees this, he hasn't seen anything like this before. For us, uh, and, and if you go to different parts of the country, different parts of the state, you're looking for Bigfoot. We got any Bigfoot lookers, lurkers out here? I don't know what the word is. But this would be like us seeing Bigfoot or like us seeing an alien, Okay, so that's how we understand D Daniel sees this. He's like, man, this is wild. This is crazy. It's shining. His face is bright. It looks like burnished bronze. This person is dressed, if we keep going, uh, in the sound of his words, like a sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me did not see the vision. What happened to them? But a great trembling fell upon them and they fled to hide themselves. So we're like, oh man, I can't wait to find Bigfoot. Or if I saw an alien, it'd be awesome. If you did, you'd be like these other guys. You'd skedaddle. <laughs> You're out of there. So we see here, this man is dressed like a priest. And this is the way the priests would look. And so when we look at the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament through the New Testament, it's actually uh, an image, it's a model of what heaven looks like. But we see here, this man who's dressed like a priest is not dressed like an earthly priest. He looks like lightning He's bright. It's scary. So when mankind, when they see angels or when they see the appearance of Jesus Christ, that's what it looks like. They, they get scared. I imagine, and, and this would be, uh, this is a bit of speculation, but a lot of theologians conclude that this is probably a Christophany. This is probably, um, this is not a, a copy of what Christ looks like, but this is probably Christ himself showing up in this vision. You know what, I mean, if you've ever been to, anybody ever seen the Eiffel Tower in person in Paris? Anybody seen that? I know my wife has. So we got a couple. Have you ever, anybody ever been to Las Vegas and seen a copy of the Eiffel Tower there in little Paris? Okay, so we have world travelers and we have, you know, uh, world sinners. And so, um, <laughs> so you've seen that, but you can't say, oh yeah, I've seen the Eiffel Tower. If you've only seen it in Las Vegas, it's a copy. We understand that. This is not a copy. This is the real, this is not Jake Paul, you know, the fighter trying to become, you know, a fighter. He gets beaten by a very weak fight. It's not a copy. This is the real deal. Jesus shows up. Revelation chapter one, it says this. This will be up on the screen. You don't have to go there with me. But Revelation one says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And this is speaking clearly about Jesus. Notice the comparison here that we see in Daniel chapter 10. And turning, I saw seven golden lamps. Stands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Does that ring true of Daniel chapter 7? Yeah. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, again, we don't know for sure this was Jesus, but probably we understand the impact that this has on Daniel. He's probably coming face-to-face -face with a Christophany, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And notice what he says. 
If we go down to verse number 11, it says, And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Man greatly loved. And we saw this last week. When the angel shows up and tells Daniel, he says, The reason I'm giving you this dream and this interpretation is because you are what? Greatly loved. He says, You are man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken these words to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel. Number one command in the Bible is fear not. Because oftentimes it's when someone sees either an angel or Jesus Christ show up, fear not because it's real scary stuff. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Now, why does Jesus Christ show up? Why? It says it right here. Because Daniel prayed. Because Daniel prayed, he says, uh, from this point, I was sent to you. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words were heard because you prayed, Jesus Christ shows up. That's incredible. So lest we get lost in all the details of the years and when and why and how, understand Jesus Christ shows up because Daniel prays. I know a lot of times, if, if we look here at the circumstances of life that Daniel was dealing with, he has just come, he's just been through 70 years of exile. He's removed from his home country. He was probably castrated. He was made to work for a king that he didn't agree with, that he didn't like. He was, he was forced there to help lead this country that were not his people. And now he's mourning at the end of three weeks of mourning because it's hard for him to see hope at the end. He's like, man, I know based on what God has done, I don't know what the future holds, but I know he's got it in his hands, but he's sitting there mourning for his people. And I wonder how do we handle the circumstances of life? I know for me, I run to control. I don't run to mourning. I don't run to sorrow or to grief. I run to, okay, things are going bad. Let me see how I can manipulate either circumstances or people around me. Let me see how I can get to a place where I feel better about my circumstances. Anybody else there? I run to a place where I want to escape the circumstances of life. I run to a place of anger where I want to lash out against others because of their sinfulness or the way that they've impacted me. That's not what Daniel does. Daniel runs to the throne of grace. He runs into mourning and he cries out to God. He doesn't, he doesn't blame God. He just says, man, here's where I am. And a good father who is over all of creation, over all time, sends his son and says, you are greatly loved. Man, that's a beautiful promise. We see here, look at verses 13 and 14. We see the veil is being pulled back on an unseen universe. And so we talked about this battle that has been raging in the spiritual realm for centuries. Look at verses 13 and 14. I want us to see five things actually from these verses. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Notice when did Jesus begin making his journey down to see Daniel? How many weeks ago? Three times seven. How many days is that? 21. Okay, as soon as you started praying, I came down to see you. He says, but the king of Persia was to me 21 days. Now, real quick, is this the literal king of Persia? No. He is talking here in the spiritual realm. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. 
For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. What exactly are the latter days? We don't know exactly. We're going to look at that some next week. So I've got a whole week to study and figure that out. But it's not talking about right now. It's probably either talking about Christ's first advent or a second coming or both. We don't know. I'll let you know. I've got at least seven days. So, so he came to you understand, for the vision is for the days yet to come. Here are a few things that we see here. First of all, we see Michael, and he's the archangel for the people of Israel. We see him mentioned in other places in the Bible, namely in the book of Jude and in the book of Revelation. When it here is talking about the prince and the kings of Persia, what they're talking about are these ranks of demons. So we have Michael, the angel who's coming to help the master and the commander of the Lord's army, who is ultimately Jesus Christ. Now, some folks would say, well, Jesus wouldn't need any help with the demons. And so maybe it's not here talking about Jesus. Maybe it's a different angel. Maybe it's Gabriel. Sure, maybe so. We don't really know for certain who this, who this man is that shows up first. My guess is, though, that Jesus Christ comes and he is battling with the demons who are there. And a, real quick, most theologians would agree with that. Uh, barely most, but most of them would. But we have here the prince, the kings of Persia. We have here this spiritual battle. Here are five things I want us to see about this battle. First, history is more complicated than we suppose. History is more complicated than we suppose. Because when we look back, he uses here the names of real nations. He talks about Persia. And at the very end of the chapter, he talks about the nation of Greece. And we've seen this before. This is the work and the impact and the power of the evil one. So when we look at nations and governments around the world, understand, and we're not looking for a demon under every rock. We're not looking for a demon in every single political position. Oh, this person's demon. I'm not saying that. But here's what we know. According to the word of God, when we look here at the book of Daniel, is that nations and governments are influenced and empowered at times and probably very often by evil demonic forces. History is more complicated than we suppose. There is a spiritual battle that has been happening for centuries and it continues today in the physical realm. Secondly, when the saints pray, opposition is inevitable. When the saints pray, opposition is inevitable. How does this begin? How did this whole chapter begin? Or how did, this, how did the narrative of this begin? It began with Daniel mourning and praying. He's praying, he's crying out to God. Friend, the enemy is okay with you doing almost anything spiritual, church-related. The enemy is fine with that as long as you do not seek the heart or the will of God. He doesn't care how much you show up to right here to the gathering of God's people to church. He doesn't care how many times you show up to life group. He doesn't care how much money you give. He does not care as long as your number one concern is not for the heart of God. In fact, he's happy if you do those things and never consider the heart of the Father. Because now you've become a Pharisee, which Jesus calls twice the sons of whom? The devil. Scary. The third thing that I want to see here is that geographic outposts host groups of demonic powers. I had a brother text me this past week and he said, he said, hey, what are your thoughts on uh, spiritual warfare, demonic powers within a home, within a house? I said, uh, I'm preaching on that Sunday. <laughs> so, and I didn't plan, I was planning on preaching Daniel 10 for at least several months now. 
again, we're not trying to go in and say, I'm not going in and saying, hey, make sure you walk around your house. We're not looking for these things. I would encourage you, don't look for demonic forces. <laughs> do not do it. But be aware that they are very real, very powerful, very present in this realm. So we have here that Jesus or an angel, whatever, is trying to get to Daniel and is stopped because he was moving through a certain area. There are certain geographic, this, these would be called territorial spirits. Man, I would love to get into this a little more. I don't have time, but if you want to talk more about territorial spirits, we can do so over five guys at any point that you would like to buy me a cheeseburger. Essentially, this territorial spirits, they seek to blind humans from the truth of who God is. That's it. And that manifests itself in particular regions, areas, zip codes, addresses. Fourthly, when you pray, a delayed answer may be the result of spiritual warfare. It may be. And then lastly, here's the fifth one. God is unfolding the wheel of history and stands ready to love us until the end. If you notice at the very end of verse 14, we saw this. I want, to, I want, you to, I want to help you understand what is to happen in the latter days for the vision that we're going to see next week in chapter 11 is for the days to come. Essentially, our enemy manifests itself in sin. We have all succumbed to the virus of sin. And our only hope is Jesus Christ. So we have here, here's the, here's the vision that we're going to see. Satan, sin, enemy, bad. Jesus, hope, good. That's it. We're going to keep moving. Verse 15. When, I had when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. Notice the impact of the spiritual realm on this. And behold, one of the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. This, I think, is probably an angel at this point. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant, me, talk with my Lord? For now, my strength, for now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left within me. As I read this, I was, I was thinking this week, I was sitting comfortably at my dining room table reading this passage, sipping a cough of single origin, fresh brewed coffee that had just come out of my Chemex. Praise God. Some of y'all are like, I really prefer Dunkin' Donuts. Just leave. Okay, Dunkin', just, I'm just, now I want you to stay. And I was sitting there thinking, man, it is so easy for me to open the word of God. It's so accessible. It's on my phone. It's on my iPad. I've got probably 30 copies in my house. I've got some copies back here in my office. It's so easy. But the reason it's easy for us or a result the fact that it's easy for us is a result of great emotional and physical heartache for those that have gone before us. Because when Daniel heard the word and the voice of God, it had an incredible impact on him. It's had an incredible impact on martyrs who have gone before us for centuries. It has an incredible impact on those who are in other countries of the world, even this morning. And as those who gather today to worship, their lives are at risk. Can I just say, as we look at Daniel and his courage and his boldness, are we loved? Absolutely. You are greatly loved because of Christ. Daniel was greatly loved. But can we not miss the fact that this word should be cherished 
And when we understand the sacrifice of those who have gone before us, can we cherish the word of God a little more? Can we have a, maybe a greater reverence to understand that this is easy for us to get? It's easy for us. In fact, this is so easy for us to read that we often don't. That's how easy it is. But there are many who have gone before us, and we had this great gift right here because of who God is and because of the people of God who have gone before us. Look at verse number 19. He says, and he said, a man greatly loved Sorry, I forgot this John Piper quote. You can go back to that. Nicole just, um, she just gave me the hairy eyeball. I didn't have to look at her. I could just feel it. I meant to say this when it came to evil spirits. John Piper says this, be ready for the extraordinary as well as the ordinary ways that evil spirits work. Don't be presumptuous as though demons are weak and don't be anxious as though they are stronger than Jesus. That's good. That's good stuff. Thank you, Pastor John. If we look at verse number 19. And he said, oh man, again, greatly love. Greatest command of the scriptures. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. This, lo- this word love, by the way, we think, oh, I love, I love pizza. I love my wife. I love the Falcons. I love all these different things. Those things are true. The word here in the Hebrew means cherished. This one is held tightly. That's what this word love means. You are desired. You are chosen. Today, in 2023, we have access to the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when we read these words, you are greatly loved. Man, what a beautiful promise that Daniel didn't even have access to. We have access to the fact that God can't leave us if we're in him because we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. And notice what the presence and the power of Jesus Christ does. It provides peace. You're greatly, peace be with you. So peace is a gift in place of fear. Be strong and of good courage. Courage comes in the place of immobility. Peace and courage, two things you cannot buy on Amazon. But these are two of the things that the world needs that only the church and the people of God through the power of the Holy Spirit can provide. Are we a people who are living in and from and for and living out of peace and of courage? Because that's what Jesus Christ provides even here. Notice in verse number 20. Sorry, let me look, let's look at the end of verse number 19. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. You have strengthened me. When Jesus Christ shows up, you cannot leave the same. Daniel will not leave the same from having an encounter with Jesus Christ. He cannot leave the same. Friend, when we engage with the word of God and we worship with other believers, we cannot leave the same. We will not leave the same. This means of grace that we have here on Sunday mornings, the means of grace that we have in life groups, in DNA groups, together as the body of Christ? Do we understand the value that we have as we gather with God's people? Because because so often, uh, a little bit of a sniffle or um, something related to sports or travel or I'm just tired, 
So many of those things will not keep us from ball games or from work or from doing what we want to do, but they will keep us from gathering on a Sunday morning. And that's because we do not understand the power of gathering with God's people and opening his word. The presence of Jesus is here in a special way when we gather around his word. Verse number 21, look here. Well, we'll go back to 20. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. We already talked about these demonic powers. Verse 21, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. This book of truth, by the way, is God's written revelation. It's the plan for Israel and for the kingdoms of the world. We'll look at that next week. So he's saying, I'm going to unfold not just what's going to happen in the future, but what is happening right now in human history in the middle of this spiritual battle. Because when we look at the book of Daniel, we don't see what happened. We see what always happens. He says, there is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And that word prince there literally means uh, a commander in the army. He's not saying, hey, we have multiple princes. He's saying a commander in the army. Here's what I want us to do. So we have, we've pulled back the curtains. We've unveiled what's happening in human history as we have here the setup in chapter 10 for chapter 11. But I think the other thing that's interesting is Daniel unveils what's happening in his heart. And I didn't touch on this. I wanted to talk about this, but notice what what is happening with Daniel. Notice the physical, the emotional impact that's happening on Daniel here as he is going through mourning as he is engaging with grief, as he is experiencing deep, great sorrow. Notice here what he he says. And he's honest about it, by the way. I skipped over, well, I, I read these. I didn't make mention of these. But if you go back through this passage, notice that Daniel there, he was mourning. Verse number three. And by the way, theologians would would call this complex grief. If you're in uh, more of the medical psychology realm, they may call this complicated grief. Almost the same thing. We have here Daniel, he he can't eat. Notice in verse number three, he ate no delicacies. Verse number, at the end of verse number three, I did not anoint myself at all. In other words, he didn't put on deodorant, okay? Uh, Verse number eight, he says, I had no strength. And he says that three or four times, my strength was gone. He says, my radiant appearance, which I think is interesting. Man, I look so good. I I was radiant. And then he says, I was fearfully changed. Again, he had no strength. Look down at verse number 15. I turned my face toward the ground and I was mute. He said, I was experiencing this grief. Verse number uh, 16. This the vision pains me. I have no strength. I have no breath left in me. And then Jesus Christ shows up and strengthens him. Here's why he was allowed to be strengthened by Jesus. It's because he was honest about what he was dealing with in his interior world. And the heart for Daniel here is for the heart of the father, for the, the will of God the father, and for the heart of his people. But he's in the midst of mourning. Here are seven things I want us to say about that. I'm going to go through these uh, pretty quickly, but I want us to understand the heart of Daniel here, his heart of grief, his heart of sorrow. And here's how I'm defining grief and sorrow this morning. It's a feeling of distress caused by loss or disappointment. We see this all throughout right here in chapter 10. 
There's great loss that he's experienced for decades, and now he's lost his people. He's sorrowful. And any time, friend, that we experience any sort of loss, whether it's a person like Chris prayed in his prayer, dealing with grief, whether it's the loss of a job, the loss of income, the loss of a hobby, the loss of a goal or a desire, whatever that loss is, anytime we experience loss, we are going to experience hurt. That's part of life. The other part of this is disappointment. Oftentimes when we experience disappointment, we often run toward contempt for ourselves or contempt for others because we want to control the situation. That may be as simple and maybe even as regular as uh, you want to be intimate with your spouse and they don't want to be intimate with you. You're disappointed. So what do you do in that moment? You run toward contempt or to anger for them. I experienced it uh, last week at a restaurant. I was disappointed in the food and in the service. And so what did I do? I went toward contempt for my waitress and for the kitchen staff who I had never even met. And I couldn't stand them. I was disappointed. So I wanted to control the situation. Maybe you thought you had more money in the bank. So you're disappointed in that. Well, it's your fault. I can't believe I would do Disappointment. You are experiencing grief. Different levels, but still grief and sorrow there. You cannot be fully alive without feeling disappointment often. So if you're like, man, I'm constantly in this. Yeah, you know that you are fully alive because you are feeling disappointment often. That's part of life. Friend, you will always often have desires that go unmet. Grief, for many of us, is constantly part of our lives. Secondly, the opposite of depression is not happy, but it's expression. The opposite of grief is not feeling better, but it's feeling. What do we have Daniel doing here? He's crying out to God. He's mourning. In the midst of that, he begins praying immediately, seeking the heart of the Father. Go and read the Psalms. 70% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, of sorrow, of grief, crying out to God. I can't feel anything. I can't see anything. A sister texted me this past week. She talked about Psalm 88. I preached it a year and a half ago. And she said, at, at the time, I, didn't, I wasn't dealing with grief or sorrow. She said, but I needed that sermon today. So I went back. It was great. That's the, that's, that's the Psalms for us. Psalm 88, Spurgeon called it the dark night of the soul. We cry out to God. And so often we try to numb ourselves from grief and our numbness does not allow us to see what's happening deep inside of us. So the way that we do experience grief or the way that it may be manifesting itself is similar to Daniel. Maybe you have a change of appetite. Maybe you have suicidal thoughts. Maybe you have a lack of drive, even to put on deodorant. Uh, maybe you, you, you're just, you're tired constantly because you're trying to numb the grief, trying to stay away from the grief because you don't know how to process it. You don't want to enter into it. I don't know what that is, but I would say underlying some of those symptoms 
there may be something else that you need to step into and deal with. It may be trauma that you experienced in the past. It may be rejection or loss. It may be abuse or neglect. You may be dealing with anger. It may be sadness. I don't know. I just know that we often try to get rid of that or we try to stay happy. Hey, just smile. Rather than stepping into this grief, this sorrow, and allowing Jesus Christ to show up and to minister to our hearts and to our souls. Friend, you are free and invited to express yourself to him. Feel that. Where do, you, where do your emotions come from? God. Which ones? The positive ones? All of them. All of them have been given to us by a good creator, a good father. The third thing is this. There have been moments in your life where you needed to be seen, loved, soothed, cared for, understood, and you weren't. Daniel here is all alone. He doesn't have anyone to depend on. He had been separated from his parents at an early age. And for you, there is probably a time in your life when you experience these things. And that moment, those times need to be grieved. Those are moments of loss, whether as a parent, uh, as a spouse, as a child, as a friend, and you need to step into grief. Those moments need to be grieved. Number four, just because we avoid, deny, or numb our disappointment or pain, it doesn't mean it's not there. We take our pain so often, our disappointment, our loss, and we stick it in the basement of our souls. I want to, I want to avoid it at all costs. Hey, let me just put on a happy face. Hey, how's everybody doing this morning? Hey, great, all right. High five Chris on the way off, you know. That's what we think, that's how our lives are. How are you doing? Great, how are you? Fine, how are you? Let's avoid at all costs. And guess what happens when that pain, when that loss, when that disappointment is in the basement, it begins collecting dust. Kind of like your box of trophies from when you were a kid. Anybody there with me? Yeah, finally had to throw mine away. That, that box of trophies begin collecting dust. And in the same way, your loss, your disappointment, your pain puts on a covering and a dust shield of shame. It begins to collect shame on it. Here's what I mean. If you tell me to go into a room full of successful uh, megachurch pastors, of which I am not, and all we talk about are our numbers or our strategies or the things that have worked, the income that we have, the ability to preach, all these different things, guess what I'm going to feel the whole time? Complete disconnection from those folks. And that's because I'm over here, I'm like, oh man, uh, it pains me that within the first year of me coming here to McDonough, that we had dozens of people leave. That's painful for me. It's painful for me to get done with a sermon and think, man, that was bad. You know what I told Keith this past week? I'm about to, I'm about to get in the weeds, okay? Uh, I told Keith, I said, man, I can't wait to preach next week because then I can redeem myself. Isn't that a beautiful picture of redemption? I get to redeem myself. Praise Jesus. You know? But that's what goes on. It pains me as sorrow, as disappointment. 
man, I wish, wish we had more money in the bank so we could pay this person. I wish we could do this. I wish we could fix the roof, you know, the right way. That's pain. So if I'm with a bunch of guys who are successful, I'm going to keep this over here covered in shame because that's who I am, is pained, disappointed, and I don't want them to know about it. The only way that I can create an emotional connection with those men is if someone at some point opens up about their shame, about their, about their pain, about their loss. And the same is true for you. There's something that you have hiding in the basement over here that is covered in shame that you don't want anyone to know about. You don't want it to be touched. And there is no emotional connection that you have with others. There is no possibility of that being redeemed because it cannot be brought to the light. There is no path toward healing because it is over here in isolation. Just because we avoid it, we deny it or numb it, it doesn't mean it's not there. And it may have been years ago. Here's the fifth thing. I want you to consider something that breaks your heart. Consider some sort of heartache that you carry. For Daniel, it was decades long, pretty much his whole life. For you, it may have been heartache, something that happened just yesterday. It may be something that happened to you 30 years ago. So I want you to consider that. You can just hold it in your hand, metaphor, your metaphorical hand, your, um, yeah, just hold it there. What is something that breaks your heart? Some sort of pain or disappointment that you've experienced? recently or in the far past. Here's my question to you this morning. What is your posture toward that thing? What is your posture toward that pain or disappointment? Here's another way of asking that question. What do you feel toward the fact that you are still sad about that thing? Not that you feel sadness about it. What do you feel toward the fact that you're still sad about it? It may be a, a friendship or a relationship that was broken, maybe a marriage or a deep friendship that you had. It may be, um, it may be the fact that you had a parent that didn't know how to communicate with you. It may be the fact that you had a parent that was very critical of you. You may have been excluded or made fun of in middle school. Here's how we often deal with that. We often hate ourselves by still being affected by it. Man, I can't believe that I'm still sad about this thing. Let me go back, put it back in the basement. Put it back, I'm not, throw away the key. I never want to see this again. Here's what we say to ourselves. I should be over this by now. Or we say, I shouldn't be affected by this anymore. Do you hear the shame language in that? Here's where the shame comes out. Because if you understand that that is covered in shame, if it's still there, you're never going to be able to express that to someone else. You're never going to be, as long as you understand that it's shame that needs to be covered up, you're never going to be able to deal with that in community. You're never going to be able to invite someone else in, including Jesus Christ. You're never going to be able to invite someone else into that pain. 
because of the shame that covers that past loss or disappointment or grief. You will never be able to share that with someone because of the fear of rejection. If someone knew that I was struggling with that or that I had struggled with that even decades ago, they would not accept me. They would not love me. They would reject me. Friends, shame at its essence is about not belonging. It's about not belonging. It's saying I'm unworthy to be in community. Here's the sixth thing. You're like, okay, so what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I still got two more points. Number six, you were created for love, community, joy, and fulfillment. You were created in the image of a triune God. What does the Trinity look like even today? Looks like love, perfect love, perfect community, perfect joy, perfect fulfillment. And you were created to be part of that. The ideal being of you is to be in community where those around you are speaking over you saying, you belong with us. You belong with us. Yeah, but what about this over here? No, no, that's part of you and you belong with us. That's how we were created. That is our essence. That's why the enemy of sin has distorted that and said, you don't belong. But friend, on the cross, you are fully known and fully loved. And Jesus Christ has paid the debt for any sort of pain that you have inflicted others. I asked my wife this past week, uh, I said, <laughs> I wish I wouldn't have. You think I'd learn my lesson by now. I'm a little slow. I said, what have been the two or three greatest areas of grief in your life? And one of them was my fault. Now, she didn't ask me the same question. <laughs> but I thought, man, I can run to shame and try to cover that up or make sense of it or just ignore it or say, oh, well, here's your problem. Or I could say, man, praise God for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that his blood has been applied. Thank you that his mercy is deeper than any of my sin. Thank you that his presence is better than the presence of loss or disappointment or grief. You are made to be enjoyed. And here's what's crazy. If you were to ask anyone walking down the street at the grocery store, any of your neighbors, atheist, anybody, you would say, is there something wrong with you or with the culture or with people? They would say, yes, something is wrong. Something is broken. But for can I tell you, we try to either numb ourselves or escape or find answers in anything else when we need to realize that the expectation for us as those who are in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, is to be in relational beauty. That's what heaven is forever going to be, is relational beauty. Yet as we see here in Daniel chapter 10, we have relational beauty available to us even today through the presence of Jesus Christ and through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So relational beauty is available. Here's the last thing. This is a question and a statement. As the people of God, as this local church, what do we need to know? 
that is not an investig- investigatory, I don't know what the word is. That's not an investigation into your life and saying, hey, I think there's something else here. Tell us so we can hold that over your head. No. This is an invitation into relational beauty. This is an invitation to take those things, the loss, the disappointment, the pain, and say, man, let, well, we, we don't want to say, man, well, I can't believe you did that. We want to come and sit with you in that pain, in that grief, in that disappointment, because that's what Jesus Christ did. And as the people of God, we are here for each other. The invitation is into a family. People are like, man, I love this church. It's great. True, and it's broken, and it's messed up. And if you think this is the perfect church, then you just messed it up. If you think I'm the perfect pastor, then come hang out at my house for like 35 seconds. You'll be like, oh man, you're, you're a real bad sinner. I know. I'm broken. You're broken. We need each other. And because of what Christ did, what does Isaiah call him? The man of sorrows, a man of grief, a man who dealt with depression and loss there in the garden of Gethsemane right before he was put on the cross. Take this away from me. What do you tell his disciples? He says, right now I'm experiencing grief, but it's so that you can experience resurrection. The invitation, what do you need us to know? Your sorrows are welcome here. Your pain, your loss, your disappointment is welcome here. And if you keep those things in the basement, you're not going to experience an invitation. You're going to experience isolation. And that's not how we were created. We've been plagued by this uh, American individualistic perspective on life, this worldview, this, this, this ideology that you can fix it yourself. And let's just overcome these things now. This is not about ascent. This is not about pride. This is not being the best version of you. This is about descent. And we're going to descend all the way to the foot of the cross and understand that Jesus Christ was humiliated for us so that we can be humbled with each other for the sake of each other. And we don't just sit there in the pain and the disappointment and the sorrow. We don't just sit there and stay there. But we're reminded even in those moments of the opportunity to love and to experience joy. We're reminded then when we have no hope in this life that this is broken and our hope is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is with you in the agony of your pain. He's with you in the agony of Good Friday. And he invites you into the joy and the glory of a resurrection life on Sunday morning. So every single Sunday is not just, hey, happy, happy, resurrection. Jesus, absolutely, Jesus is alive. There's great joy. There's great happiness. But right now we're in this already, not yet. The kingdom is here and it's not here fully. We're still broken. We still need each other. And so I would plead with you, what you need most is the presence of Jesus Christ in your life. And in those moments where that grief, it it mines and it digs out the deepest, darkest parts of who we are. As those things are dug out and exposed to the light, what fills those voids is the love of Jesus. 
So we're no longer empty because of what has been done to us. Now we can be filled with love and now we can engage those around us with the love of Jesus because of what he has done. Amen? So I would invite you into that. Invite you into life. What does that look like? Man, it looks like life groups and DNA groups. Like, oh, this is just a ploy for, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. This is an invitation into being honest with your spouse, into being honest with a friend, into being honest with your parents, into being honest with your kids, into being honest with Christ. This is an invitation into grief, and this is an invitation into true joy. I want to also invite you to the table this morning. This is a reminder of Jesus Christ who was broken, whose blood was shed because of us. He identifies with us in our grief and our sorrow, in our sinfulness. He was perfect. He became sin for us. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, to love it all, now notice the heart behind this, is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark, motionless, airless, it, your heart, will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. This morning, this is a chance for us to repent of our sin, to repent of those areas that we have idolized in our lives. Jesus Christ was broken. We can be broken in our sinfulness. He restores, he covers us with his righteousness. We get to rejoice during this time as well. He invites us to a table and he promises to join us supernaturally, spiritually. This is a special time for us. This is an invitation into life. This table is for those who need it. When we partake of this table, what we're saying is, we don't have it all together. We're broken, we're messed up, we are without hope in and of ourselves. That's who this table is for. So as we do this, for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, may we be reminded, I'm not alone in this. I'm not alone in my need. We're doing this together. Christ has provided a way to life and to love. Let's be reminded of that and let's remind each other of that even now. Family, you're invited to this table.